Hello, podcast listening people of the world, and welcome to another Jim Picked. That's right, it's Jim Picked episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, I'm Danny Lobel. You're you, and the guest today is Ophira Eisenberg, who many of you may know from the popular NPR show that she hosts, Tell Me Another, a very entertaining game show that I myself have listened to in the car and enjoyed. Great talk with Ophira, she's a delight, a lovely, lovely gal. And we got into some good stuff, some interesting stuff, and I can't wait for you to hear it. And now I want to ask you a question. Do you suffer from bad credit? I know that I certainly have in the past, and it was no fun. Couldn't get credit cards, couldn't get loans. Getting a good FICO score is a dirty dance. And if you don't know how to dance it, they win. If you have bad credit, there is a solution. And the solution is a company that I have used personally called Renovatio Enterprises and they have a website, RenovatioEnterprises.com. And what they can offer you is no cost, no obligation analysis to determine exactly what's holding your scores down. Which in plain English means they'll take a look for no money at your credit score, dig around, see what's going on. And then they'll say, look, this, these are the problems. And they'll let you know what they'll charge. Other than a $250 deposit, you don't have to pay for anything until the negative item gets removed from your credit score, which is awesome. It's not a very high point of entry for something that can really transform your life in such a positive way if and when it's successful. So, you know, 250 bucks that's a low risk. You give them $250 deposit and they will get to work. They promise to get you over a 700 credit score in as little as 30 days. And they can help you get qualified for a new credit card or an unsecured personal loan. Need I say more? RenovatioEnterprises.com, again, is the website. Their number is 888-443-2908. Can't recommend it enough. 888-443-2908. Get your credit fixed. Fix your life up. Buy a boat. Take the boat out. Start a fishing business. Get arrested. I don't know. Look, live life. And uh, if you don't have credit, it's, it's not as much fun. So call them up. 888-443-2908. We're also brought to you today by Stand Up Records, and here's a word from them. Warning. Last year, over 40,000 Americans died in car-related accidents. Not a pleasant thought, is it? In fact, as thoughts go, it's downright depressing. Well, that's where we can help cheer you up. We're StandUpRecords.com, and we offer the finest in CDs, DVDs, downloads, and merchandise from the best comedians on Earth. Artists like Mark Marin, Maria Bamford, Eddie Pepitone, and Doug Stanhope. Available at fine record stores, Amazon.com, and the iTunes Music Store. That's StandUpRecords.com. Come on, listen to us while you're driving. Live dangerously. StandUpRecords.com. I love them. You love them. Everybody loves them. Great company, and my album's coming out on the label August 4th, available for pre-order on iTunes. Go to the website, standuprecords.com. They'll link you right to it, or go to moderndayphilosophers.net, and there'll be a link up there that you could click also to pre-order the album. It helps, uh, I guess, the placement on on the charts. If you pre-order it, it would be really helpful, and I know you're going to love it. Nicest Boy in Barcelona. I taped it in Barcelona. It's finally coming out. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. Please go pick up a copy today. And I'm excited to tell you that we're also sponsored by BB's Bakery and Cafe. And now here's a little chat I had with the owner. You know what? Let's cut right to it. I am currently sitting with the owner and proprietor of BB's, Dan Messinger. Dan, it's great to have you here. You listen to the podcast. In addition 
to the fact that also I, I work for you sometimes. It's true. Uh, I'm a fan of the podcast and a fan of you, Danny. And I, I think uh, I'm happy to support this endeavor. I think it's a great show. And you had some great guests and really great discussion. And I'm, I'm a fan of yours as well. And I'm also a fan of all the products over at BB's. Let's talk to the listeners about some of the, the great things you can get if you go to BB's Cafe and where it is. It's Pico Boulevard. It's 8928 West Pico Boulevard. We're a little bit west of Robertson. For those of you who live in L.A. or those who are going to visit L.A., uh, we are a kosher bakery and also a cafe. Um, we bake everything on site from our bagels to our pita bread, special uh, Israeli-style street food, barakas, sesame pita, Jerusalem bagels, all of it, again, baked fresh every day. Uh, we do sandwiches and salads and other things that are great for people who are trying to get some breakfast or lunch or dinner, or uh, a lot of tourists come in to get food for their visit. Let's talk about some favorite dishes, some of my favorite things. First of all, I love the rugelach. People think of it as like a Jewish cookie. It's, it's, um, they're different styles. Our style is somewhat like a croissant. It's a puff pastry type dough, uh, and ours are generally filled either with chocolate or cinnamon. And the problem with a lot of rugelach out there is that a lot of them are dry, and these are never dry and delicious. But the moistness, I think, is what sets them apart from all those knockoff rugelach out there. There are a lot of different types of, of rugelach dough. There's some that are cream cheese based. Ours is not, um, but we use a, a pretty generous amount of our chocolate filling. And I think that really helps hold the, the moisture. What are some of your favorite things on the menu? So I, I really like a sambusak, uh, which is what we call our Middle Eastern calzone. So it's a, a dough pocket that we fill with cheese and sauce and vegetables, or some people put a hard-boiled egg in there as well. And that's a nice um, filling meal. One of the funny things about working there is, is watching people come in and mispronounce the foods. It is, you know, you have to keep yourself entertained when you're working in service. And we're, we're open from 7 to midnight most days. So it's like a 16-hour shift for me. My employees work less, but for me, it's often a 16-hour shift. So you got to stay entertained. So the sambusak, which I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. a lot of people will call it sambuska. <laughs> Which sounds like, you know, Russian. Russian the sambuska. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll give you sambuska. <laughs> you'll be okay. Okay. So sambuska, sambuki. That was my one of my favorites. I sambuki like one of sounds sambukis. like it's from The Lion King. Do you remember a woman who came in and wanted only one half of the black and white cookie? Yes. <laughs> But she didn't, she didn't, she wasn't willing to go like, I want the white half. Like she knew there was something wrong with saying, I'd like the black and white cookie, but could you just keep separate the black half? <laughs> she knew that was inappropriate. Who orders a, a, a fraction of a cookie? <laughs> but then she was upset that I wouldn't sell her half a cookie. I'm like, I can't sell you half a cookie. I'm like, I'll sell you the whole cookie and give you half. Yeah. She stormed out. As I recall, she bought nothing and she stormed out. That is correct. It's a $2 cookie. So maybe she was like, I <laughs> Like going into a pizza shop. How much for just the crust? <laughs> Let's give people a, a thing that they can do if they come into BB's, a special perk from listening to this show. Sure. So this is a special offer for modern-day philosopher listeners, okay? If you come into the store and give the password, and the password is going to be connected to our show today, the password is boober. 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 So we're going to make you say boober. Yeah. Publicly. Allowed. You can't write it down on a slip of paper and pass it over. You have to actually say it. Um, <laughs> we will give you a free sample of the rugelach, okay? Free. You're going to get 100% free rugelach just for saying the password, boober. And let me just add, the catering is phenomenal. If you ever have an event and you want to cater it and you want something a little different than just the regular cold cuts or whatever, uh, definitely order some platters from BB's Bakery. Not only is it affordable, but you guys do a great job, and it'll make your guests say, Boober? 
Maybe they'll say Boober. Maybe they'll say we might just be like, wow, this is this is phenomenal. Yeah, or they'll say Boober, and then you're gonna say like, oh, uh, thank you. I uh, I was hoping they'd say Boober. Honey, they said Boober. Then you gotta give them a free rug. <laughs> right. <laughs> Dan, it's a pleasure talking to you, and everybody go and check out BB's Bakery and Cafe. If you're in L.A., if you're visiting L.A., definitely come into the, to the shop. Thank you very much. Uh, great show. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Dan. BB's Bakery and Cafe. There it is. Go and get some rugalach today. I'll tell you what, it's been a rough a rough month in some ways, and in other ways, it's been a terrific month for me. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting place to be because... I'm feeling psychologically, and I was feeling psychologically very liberated recently. I found really good ways to handle my depression, and I was starting to gain momentum. And by the way, it hasn't stopped. I still have this momentum going, and I'm and I feel like I'm on the ball more than I have been, or or, or whatever in ages. And I'm very positive, positive energy, thinking positively, um, and and uh, figuring out all the secrets of life in my head. And then I got hit with this horrible bombshell that my grandfather, who was in good health, reasonably good health, uh, and with whom I've been very, very close for my entire life, uh, tragically, sadly, I don't know if, what to call it, but he passed away. And it, was, it, it broke my heart. And when I talk about it, I get choked up. It's interesting because as somebody who's suffered from depression for a long time. It's so different than sadness. Depression is, um, I figured it out. Depression's a manipulation of, of the imagination. I figured out what, what goes on is your imagination can, can spiral and, and it's a major muscle. It's the invisible muscle in your mind that if you don't control it, it controls you. And depression can make you feel really sad and hopeless and, and weak and defeated and it's it's not real it's your imagination but it feels real it's the same thing as when i used to go to the hospital a lot because i thought i was dying of various illnesses and it was all psychosomatic it felt 100% real and depression makes you think you're sad you're not actually sad you just feel sad and it's hard at that moment to tell the difference but when you're actually sad as i have been by the passing of my grandfather and though i i'm also sad and i'm also trying to celebrate his life because he was he lived an incredible wonderful life he was a decorated war hero of world war ii with a purple heart and he never talked about it he he hated the fact that he had to be part of it but he was when he was part of it he defended our country he he, he killed nazis and he was a peaceful quiet loving full of love wonderful wonderful artist who who painted and sculpted and made my brothers and I wood carvings of different animals and made gorgeous oil paintings, even worked in his lifetime with the famous Norman Rockwell. And uh, he was, he was, you know, you always hear that, you see these things on a gravestone and, and you go, and it goes, beloved husband, dedicated father, loving grandfather. And you go, yeah, okay, I guess when, when somebody passes away, you know, it does <laughs> All those things are, you just say those things, you know, because you want, you're not, what are you going to write? So-so dad, uh, lousy grandfather, abusive husband. You never see that on a, on a gravestone. So everybody just puts these things. But I really can say that my grandfather 
maybe more so than anybody I've ever known, lived up to all those things. He was a wonderful, incredible, dedicated husband to my grandma for 75 years. They were together and married. Um, and together and married, my grandma got dementia. And he, he was still sharp as a tack. And she would ask him the same thing 100 times. And he'd sit next to her and, and, and kindly and patiently re-answer her and take care of her lovingly for years like that. Because he loved her so much that even when it could have been frustrating and heartbreaking and feel lonely for him in those scenarios, he, he, he was there for my grandma. Both my, my dad and his brother said they never have one bad memory of their dad. Never yelled at them. He was, he, he was able to always provide discipline in, in a soft-spoken and loving, caring way. He never, he never did a, a, he never had a bad move. And, and for me, when I was a little kid, he used to watch me because we all lived in the same building complex in Queens before we moved to Long Island. And my grandpa used to babysit me and, and he worked at JC Penney's. He, he ran the art department for their catalog and he used to come home from work and pick up toys for me, tinker toys and building blocks. And he loved me so much. He took such great care of me. He was such a wonderful, wonderful grandfather. I, he, he did everything right. And for that, I got to celebrate him. He did it all right. And he, he did it all with a smile, always with a smile, always full of love. And I got to tell him how much I love him. An hour before he passed away, we were FaceTiming together. And, he, and we told each other that we love each other. And it hurts that he's gone. It hurts. It hurts to lose somebody so significant in your life. But at the same time, I suppose that's that's part of life. You can't have everybody forever. And at some point, you're going to lose people. And it, I don't think it ever gets easier. But he definitely lives on through the through my most positive qualities. When I'm my best self, I can attribute a lot of where I learned that from to my grandpa Leo. So I want to dedicate this show to, to him. I wish I could I wish I could dedicate more. And the interview took place before my grandpa passed away and and it's not emotionally charged like this, and it's a fun talk. So if, if you're thinking, man, this, this is heavy and I need a break from it, well, you're in luck because the show, the show is, is not. And uh, I love you all. I wish you all a long life. And I hope you all enjoy this episode. So without further ado, except for the intro song, here's my talk with Ophira Eisenberg. Enjoy. Welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. In the studio with Ophira Eisenberg. In the studio with Danny Lobel. 
we've met, haven't we? Yeah, we. Um, I remember distinctly actually doing um, risk storytelling with you at, I believe, the venue that is now gone in Tribeca. Ah, that's right. <laughs> that's what I'm calling it. The venue that is now gone in Tribeca. That's, that's, I remember that, yeah. yeah. And you told some version of the chicken story. That's right. Yeah. And then I wound up doing that story like again and again <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, that became the story, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So I do remember that. And I, I believe we met a time before that too. But you are someone who I always like feel like, you know, there are names that you that circulate that you always hear. You hear them a little too often. You're like, you, why? No, but you just hear them. You're just like, oh, that's just somebody who's who's in the circuit with me, you know? Right, yes. And, yes. and like, then there's always people you're like, who? I don't know if I know who that is. Or or, or, or like, everybody knows who they are. Right, you know, in, in Toronto, I started comedy in Toronto, and that scene was small enough that when that second thing happened, like, someone would be like, oh, and you know, you know, um, Jerry Stahl, who does comedy? And I'd be like, I've never heard of that name. And you know what that means? They don't do comedy. Oh, They're uh. lying. But in New York, <laughs> it, it's impossible. It's amazing. Yeah. And and it just gets bigger and bigger, I feel, because now there's just like so many names that I don't know. Who so they many are. names. Yeah. And people start in different ways. It used to be, obviously, that it used to be. Most people started on stage, but now you can start with a online following of some in some way, whether it's a Twitter thing or a web series thing or a YouTube thing or whatever, and then you make your foray into stand up. Right. And then, you know, there's, but you go back to my original point. I feel like you, though we don't know each other very well or much at all, or we've just seen each other in passing, I feel like I know you more than I know you because your name has been in my consciousness for. Decades. A decade. Yeah. Yeah. You've only been doing it a decade? No, I've only been in America a decade. And you're from Canada? From then? Canada. Calgary, Alberta, actually. Ooh. Yeah, I know. What are your Little parents? left turn there. Parents do what? what? Uh, my my mother, they're, okay, so first of all, my parents are much, much older. My mother is 88. My father is long, long deceased now. Mm. Um, growing up, and, you know, my father's originally from Israel, but... I mean, he was born when it wasn't even Israel yet. Back when it was Palestine. Back when it was Palestine. My mother is from Nijmegen, Holland. They met after, they met during the liberation movement um, at the end of World War II. Was she a Holocaust survivor? Is she a Holocaust survivor? No, she was raised uh, Catholic. Okay. Dutch Catholic. Uh, And a good way to make a Dutch Catholic girl convert to Judaism is not only give her a, a mate that she's interested in, mm-hmm. but put her in school that is run by nuns. Uh, so she went to a Nuns s- are a big turnoff. <laughs> I talked to a lot of people. Nobody ever comes in here and has great things to say about nuns. No, she, to- she's, she told me that, you know, for punishment, there was sawdust on the floors, uh-huh. I guess. And for punishment, you would have to roll down your socks. You were in a uniform of a skirt and high socks and shoes. Uh-huh. You would roll down your socks and lift up your skirt and sit with as much bare leg as possible in the sawdust, which I guess also was gravelly or whatever. You know, so it hurt. That it's was a punishment. punishment. My mother's school was bombed, actually, by the Americans, which she is uh, she is one to point out. Um, it was they were Nijmegen is right near the German border, and they were bombing bridges and anything that was. Does she point close. it out with anger towards America? I think just because sometimes when in Canada and America you talk about bombing during World War II, nobody thinks about the Americans bombing or, or you know I guess, be, mm-hmm. but they did. They, be, they were bombing, and it wasn't perfect. 
um, it wasn't precise. And so they happened to bomb all of Nijmegen, actually, to try to stop the Germans from completely taking it. Well, the Germans had taken it over, but as far as like trying to stop more advancement. So they bombed her school when she was in the eighth grade, and that was the one day she was not at school. So everyone else died? Everyone else died. And she will tell this story to you, which is obviously a very sad and a tragic story, and say that a couple days later she rode her bike by the wreckage and the nun she hated the most was hanging dead in a tree. Wow. And then she will laugh. Ha ha. That's an intense story. <laughs> She'll be like, you see? <laughs> dead in a tree. The one I hated the most. Dead in a tree. Yeah. So she, um, <laughs> my parents immigrated to Canada. Um, she looked up at that nun and she said, time to we're become done. a Jew. We're done. That's, that's yeah. such a crazy story. I, did you use this at all as a bargaining chip to get out of school? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not, now that I'm thinking of it, it would have been smart. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that's why she, you know, it was, hard to, it was hard to complain with parents who had been through these kinds of things, you and, know? And your dad, what had he been through? So, yeah, so he was a soldier, uh, obviously, during World War II, fighting for the British. And then they lived in, they got married, they lived in uh, Haifa, lived in Sfat and Haifa, where he ran an import-export business of some sort. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they decided to leave. My mother was sick of wars, because there's still a lot of wars going on. Yeah. Uh, and so in the uh, early 50s, they got on a boat and came to Canada, where my father started teaching bar mitzvah classes and Hebrew uh -huh. to uh, the Jews there, which was a small population, and then moved to Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which at the time was a brand new city, and that brand new city wanted to have a Hebrew school. So he helped build and became the principal of uh, one of the major, the, the uh, Hebrew school there. Uh, did, was it a pretty religious upbringing then? He was a religious upbringing, but they, in they definitely religious upbringing, but the way it sounds to me is that it was... This, in a sense, it was the same as everybody else. They were they were working class, so they were still working. And father, uh, that there was a bakery business, uh, but they were they were religious, and it just sounded to me like you know he wasn't going to yeshiva or whatever. But he was. They were all the same amount of religious, and it was very religious. Okay, I w I assume we'd consider it orthodox. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he didn't. No, had and pay us. Not uh, okay. Yeah. So he didn't raise you guys religious in any way. Well, my older two brothers, I'm the youngest of six. My older two brothers were raised in Israel, um, but not raised very religious. They moved to Canada at a young age. And, you know, they ended up in Hebrew school, but there was gaps along the way where they were in, they were in school in Holland for a little while. Uh -huh. um, and then they went to uh, school in uh, the Hebrew school and as well as my sisters and my brother, but my father retired the year I was born. Mm -hmm. Actually, he just changed careers. The year I was born, the Board of Education decided to have this mandate where they wanted to make sure all the teachers had proper accreditation. Yeah. And my father had never obviously gone to school to be a teacher. And he was insulted by this act and decided to Sure, retire. when he got there, it was a brand new city. Yeah. They didn't care about accreditation. No, they anything. didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't. Uh, and so then he ran grocery stores. So I, I went to public school and I grew up working in a grocery store. How was it being the youngest of six? Was there anything about that that would... <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you know, to this day, I think what I've done with my life just in terms of being a stand-up and always like having to tell my story on a microphone is much of a reflective topic amongst my older brothers and sisters who did not take such a path. Mm -hmm. And they wonder why that is. But I was the... Is it not a very close relationship between the siblings now? You know, uh, There's so much space in between us. So I am close with the ones that are closest to me in age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all live in different places. So um, like, I don't call my older brothers. They also had kids basically before I was born. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's very... You came along late in the story. <laughs> I did come along very late in the story. Right. That's the thing. They already had like complete total lives. Yeah. Uh, and then I showed up. So... And you're like, hey, what, where's everybody going? Yeah, exactly. What is it? What's your name? What happened to you? They're like, we're done. We're done. We've we've gone through this. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of funny. Like, I did go to Disneyland as a kid. But trust me, there was a lot of the stuff that my parents were like, we're not doing it again. <laughs> like, we're old and tired. And we're not doing it again. Yeah. You want to do something? You get a job. Make some money and go do it. Was it rough for you? I mean, I didn't think it was rough. Because I didn't know Just any better. Sort of now looking back, do you feel bad? Do you wish that your parents would have been more attentive to you? That you would have been earlier born in the lineup? Yeah, you know, I mean, what what if would have that made any? I it's I I don't live in that world. Oh no, I don't live in the what if world. <laughs> that actually drives my husband crazy. He's a big he's a big what if muser, and I just always go, what's the point of that? What does he do? Uh, he produce. He works in television production. He produces promos. Currently working for BET. Actually. Oh, cool! All right. We call it. We call it the their diversity hire. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> he's like a white Jewish guy. Uh, but he, yeah, he loves it. He is much more of a comedy comedy historian and consumer than I am. Mm-hmm. He is someone that listened to it's that's also I gotta say it's a bit of a guy thing. Like listen to all the records growing up. Him and his friends would talk about the records. How's that a guy thing? Girls don't listen to records. Girls don't listen to I my eleven to fourteen year old girlfriends did not listen to George Carlton or um Richard Pryor albums and mm-hmm. talk about it. That is not no one was doing that. I was mm-hmm. it I don't even remember it being a possibility. You listened to it if you were lucky, like me, because your older siblings listened to it. Right. And it was on in the living room on the record player or whatever. Yeah. So you would hear your brothers listening to George Carlin and and that? National Lampoon is the one I really remember, the National Lampoon records, which is such a weird thing. And there was Bill Cosby records for sure. Uh Are you a Bill Cosby fan? I mean, it's hard. Not of the rape of the (laughs) comedy. I was when I was a kid. I still think he was yeah. a great comedian. One of the best shows I've ever seen live. I got to say, I saw him live too, and it was one of the best shows I ever saw. Yeah. And he did this encore thing that was such a simple little piece about making um, stuffing for a Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah. That was... Were you at Lincoln Center when you saw Yeah. Him? I was at that show. So good. Yeah. So good. We both saw the same show. <laughs> See, we have been around each other for I'm, years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're in my sphere. You're in... Yeah, but you moved out to LA. Yeah, did you notice? <laughs> I, I noticed. You, you did. I noticed. <laughs> so that that took you out of my sphere. You're, okay. You're a further out. Yeah, I didn't. I don't even know who lives where. It doesn't matter. But, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. I met someone who works in New York on Sesame Street who lives in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. The world doesn't. It's all different now. It's a Damn. different world. <laughs> you don't have to live where you work. Were your ambitions to be a comedian as a kid when you'd hear these records? No, I mean you know. 
joking around at the dinner table and all these, I mean, obviously we would have these huge parties and occasions because there was so many people. Uh, and we'd all get together a couple times a month or whatever for birthdays or Passover, or what have you. And there, it was just constantly joking around the table. Right. And, you know, it was very rewarding telling jokes and having pe- your family laugh at you. Uh, not, I wouldn't say we're, we're not cold people, but we are um, judgmental. Like I always felt very judged by, by your family, by my family. And I remember specifically being, I don't know, grade two or something like that. And having this, um, I had a piece of paper that someone had been Xeroxing and passing around. And it was all the different takes on, um, oh God, it's like all the religions take on shit happens. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, the Buddhists say like, let shit happen or whatever it is. It was right. just all the, you know, all the different religions. And I was reading it out loud to them at the dinner table and everyone was cracking up. And it, it was my first taste of acceptance by my family. And it happened to be through comedy. Yeah. So that made a large impression on me, but I didn't, it didn't occur to me like pursuing it. Who are my role models? Um, I mean, like they ended up being real role models, but as a kid, I wasn't like Joan Rivers. Like that didn't make any sense to me at all. Is Joe Rivers a guy that I should know? Joan Rivers. Oh, Joan Rivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. You Sorry, said Joe, Joe, Joe Rivers. Joe, yeah, Joe Rivers. Is that <laughs> I a think Canadian? Earlier, woman? you said accidentally George Carlton. Carlton, which was funny. I let it go, but I, I thought George that, Carlton, George Carlton, and Joe Rivers. It's like all the Canadian versions of <laughs> yeah, American yeah, comics. Knockoff comics. <laughs> Knockoff comics. Oh my god, knockoff comics would be hilarious. Bobby Dangerfield's pretty good. <laughs> Performing at the improv. What? <laughs> Come on down yeah. to the comedy stork. This is weird. The comedy stork. <laughs> well, I guess the simple analysis would be that your parents were old. You were already like vying that. for their attention. Yes. And so you went into an attention-based career. Yeah, and there's all this, I mean, there's so much written on the birth order, right? And and who these who you become and whatever based on your birth order. And, you know, there's a, whether you believe it or not, there's a huge amount of people in artistic careers and comedy specifically who are the youngest. Mm-hmm. It is that like... Never being heard, never having the space to be heard. How do you find the space to be heard? I'm an oldest and I have the same feelings. Right. Of never. Of of not being heard and feeling like they they went and listened to the youngest. I wonder if it's like a split. I wonder if there aren't that many middle children in comedy. I never thought about it, but I'd love to see the data on that. Yeah, let's get some data. I'm sure that we we could do a Twitter poll. I don't think I've Those ever seen accurate. the data on anything in my life. Get, get Nate Silver on it. <laughs> oh man! Uh, so when did you start doing comedy? I started. So I I went to college. I took a cultural anthropology degree with a minor in theater. Mm-hmm. And then um, yeah, I I didn't know what was going to go on with that. I guess I was going to do graduate work. It was very unclear. Even I was unclear. I actually took the theater so late in my degree because I think I had this mind's eye that I wanted to do something performative, but I just, I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the guts. Uh, It was actually even, you know, I guess that typical sort of immigrant family thing. It was, um, was really sort of, 
I, I guess there was a lot of influence in my family, like do something valuable with your life that can pay for your life because mm-hmm. we're not going to pay for your life. Yeah. Kind of thing. And like, you know, my my father would have never dealt with anyone with an artistic pursuit. And, yeah. and he, but he ended up with some kids with artistic pursuits because my brother is like a, a makes jewelry. He's a goldsmith. So anyways, I um, took a year off, went to Vancouver, you know, to what, smoke pot. Is that what people do in Vancouver? Yeah, that's what you do. I've never been to Canada. It's a beautiful place waiting for you. I've been to, I don't know if you count this, I've been to Montreal, but people say that's Quebec. That's not even Canada. You haven't experienced it. Yeah, it's Canada. Yeah? That's that's the only place I've been. Montreal is fantastic. That is where I went to uh, college. Okay. McGill. So you go to Vancouver to smoke pot. So I go to Vancouver to hang out and smoke pot. I ended up volunteering at the comedy festival there for something to do. And met some like like this ragtag motley crew of aspiring standups. Uh, and Is there they, any other kind? Yeah, right. They were just hilarious. You know, all ages, all yeah. different. And and they were like, "Oh, there's this class that you should come to, like a workshop, just a weekend workshop. It's like three hundred dollars. It's taught by this guy from Austin, Texas, actually. So I just told a couple stories that I told around the dinner table type thing seriously like mm-hmm. the the cliche of the oh i'm so funny at a dinner table i told those stories and i got the guy was very positive to me and said a couple of very key things um and you then, remember what they were yeah i mean i just it feels a little bit embarrassing to say him, but he was just like you have that thing like when you go on stage like people can't take their eyes off of you and uh, you uh-huh. know, like there's you have a stage presence. You can't you can't make that. You know, that's like an old timing uh, showbiz guy. Yeah, and you I, I, I was thing, into kid. it, man. I was into it. Yeah, uh, I felt also, you know, not for nothing. That guy saying that, true or not, uh, it was really the first time anyone had said anything to me on such an individual, positive level. Mm-hmm. That it meant so much. Sure, you came from this terribly judgmental family. <laughs> Yeah, and I was I I did a lot of I mean I, I felt like all through school I was always trying to prove that I was smart when I was pretty mediocre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took ballet for years. I was not great at it. <laughs> like I was really I really did a lot of stuff that I wasn't mm-hmm. so good at. And then I did stand up. Another thing that I was took me so long to even bother to be like listenable at. But he, uh, he invited me to do the graduation show the next evening mm-hmm. and i was like i have a shift at kinko's like i don't I can't even make it and then i called in sick for my shift at kinko's and then you showed up the next day and kinko's had been bombed and the worst person there was hanging <laughs> dead in a tree <laughs> the meanest photocopier <laughs> um yeah no i did the show and it was uh who knows what it was right but for me it was the most unbelievable experience and it felt like you were hooked you know, yeah i was like the drug and jumping off a cliff uh-huh. and skydiving and everything and fulfilling a dream and everything at the same time and i was hooked and that was how many years ago that was it's close to 20 okay but then i didn't do anything about it for how long like a solid year of definitely just saying that i was going to do something about it and hanging out at the club off Mm -hmm. and on but they had a very a very clear system where you would call in on this day to do amateur night on this day and i would always somehow screw it up and call the wrong day too much pot 
you know, it was it was beyond that. It was such yeah. self sabotage in a funny little way. Like, where do you think that came from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fear, just utter fear of failure, just fear that I would be like if I pursued it, that would mean you know agreeing to do this thing and talk about the ultimate place to be judged. Mm-hmm. You're on stage, and your job is to make people laugh who don't give a shit about you. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I was, uh, I was just, and and then making money and attach, and then deciding that's something to do, and taking it seriously. I was very concerned about the whole thing, but I finally tried a bunch of times, and I did really like it. And soon, soon after that, I just decided that I was moving. I mean, I had a breakup. There's all this other just life, dumb life stuff happening, mm-hmm. uh, and I decided I wanted to move to Toronto. You know, and give it a real shot, and give it a real shot. And then, yeah, so and I moved to Toronto and I gave it a real shot. And then ultimately moved to New York. And then I moved to New York. Yeah, I, I was in Toronto for about five years uh, and I was working, surprisingly. I mean, it, it surprises me looking back at it. Yeah. Um, maybe, yeah, anyways, I was working, did some television, you know, was was uh, making some real progress there. And I, Toronto's a funny place. I, I really liked living there. Uh, I really loved the people that I hung out with there, but it did not feel like the place for me. Mm-hmm. And also there's a weird um, relationship Toronto has with New York because they always reference themselves in uh, to New York. They're like, I'm Canada's New York, blah, blah, blah. Uh. But they talk about New York in this way that is so jealous or like, well, this might be Toronto, but the real game's in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and they, it's just a weird relationship. And I just was like, I just want to go to that real place. I want to go to that place we just are always talking about. And take the note, Toronto. Start talking about yourself with higher self-esteem. I know. It's yeah. true. Then people will stay. Although, you know, in hindsight, I and I always wanted to live in New York. I had a little thing in my romanticized it as well. I w- I wish I would have moved to L.A. just because I think it would have been a nicer standard of living. Yeah. Um, you know? I moved here and I'm no, in no rush to go back. Yeah. Yep. Most uh, most New York comics who move out here are like, yeah, I miss people. You know, oh, they but miss people? But it's fine. <laughs> well, I, I, I see plenty of people here. Well, everyone's moved out. Yeah. You have your whole community. I feel like when when you're in New York, almost like you're in, in, in a prison cell, but you don't know it. And then when you get here, um, who said was that Foucault that <laughs> talked about New York? I mean, specifically as a prison cell. I'm oh, not really? even I, like I, I know we're talking about philosophers, but I'm pretty sure Foucault actually compares. And if anyone listening wants to fact check the shit out wow. of me, I welcome you. But compares living to New York like a prison in a weird way that you talk about getting out all the time, and when you get out, you freak out and you want to go back in. That's what I was going to say. Yes. That is, it's, and then there's even, it's, I think it's called, it's not Prisoner's Dilemma, Stockholm but anyways. Stockholm Syndrome or something. <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome, yes. Because when you New first, York is when your you first get out here, you're like, I got to get back to New York. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, I could run I'm around fine. the fields. you I'm know fine. I, Yeah. But it takes a while to make that adjustment where you're like, oh, this is okay. I yeah. can live. I can live. I can live like this. This is great. I can have a couch. You know, whatever. I can have a couch. <laughs> I have a I have a backyard. Yeah. I can let my dog run in a little backyard. It's it's a much better quality of life, in my opinion. Yeah. New York has got that electricity. It's fun. 
Yeah, I, I actually the second I got off the plane here, I was like, we. I felt like a wild animal, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I'm sure all the LA people just look at New Yorkers who are coming off planes all the time. They're like, there's another one, just like a weird rabid dog who's arrived wearing way too much black. <laughs> so, so you you've been in New York ever since then? Huh? I've been in New York ever since. Yeah, and and then you know I I met a guy and we got married and then we had a kid. So now and uh, five years ago, so right, I was doing. Stand up and the moth, which is storytelling, um, and and a, and I wrote a book, a memoir, and and right around that time I got this job at NPR, and because and that's based out of New York. So for the mm-hmm. last five years, I've been very tied to New York. Okay, what's the book? The memoir. The memoir is called "Screw Everyone: Sleeping My Way to Monogamy." Uh huh. So it's a. Uh, as you can tell, it's about agriculture. No, it's pretty clear what yeah. that's about. So yeah, it's a, it's a memoir, a comedic memoir of like all the different relationships I've had of uh, different lengths and mm-hmm. and seriousness. And, Were there uh, many? You know, as it turns out, I, I, there, I think there was a good amount because I didn't care about settling down particularly. And I just really liked guys and I liked dating and I thought it was mm-hmm. fun. Uh, and I had And I had some relationships that... You know, especially when I moved to New York, there was a lot more casual stuff that was going on just because that was what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was a serial dater. I always was sort of dating someone. Uh, and, uh, you know, people are like, what's your number? And I never really counted it. I can't even remember some of them. I mean, that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. If you do it right. Yeah. You not you don't have to write <laughs> down every name, weird serial color. What are you doing? Um, but I think my number or whatever, so maybe it's like 50, 60, something like that. And in terms of the data that is out there, either people laugh at that because they are in the hundreds mm-hmm. or they are like, well, because they've been with under 10. That's there me. is really, but there's nothing in <laughs> yeah. between this little middle zone where uh-huh. I'm like, oh, I think it was like 50, 60. That's, that's like a weird exception. Most people are mm-hmm. like, no, under 10. Or like over 100. You're like somebody who drinks a lot but isn't an alcoholic? Oh, you know what? That's what I like to say. <laughs> uh, that's what I like to say in the middle of the fight. <laughs> Do you fight a lot? Uh, we uh, we fight more that now that we have a child. It really brings out the best in you. <laughs> well, well, is it just because you're sleep deprived or is it? You know, it's a whole combination. I definitely think it's sleep deprived. There's a whole thing about like hormones. But... This is, I think this, it's a major life change, but I, I just think it's the, um, it's the pressure cooker aspect of it, uh, especially because we did it a little bit older. So we were pretty kind of set in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, there's no way to avoid the truth, which is your entire life is going to be uprooted. So you have, and then you, and it will be forever. The idea that you're going back to what it was is gone. That is gone. That is like a hilarious little myth. Mm-hmm. That one, nothing's ever going to be back normal. So you have to build going forward, and it's a tough job. And you put two people in that who, and it's high, and you're in a high stakes situation too, right? Because you're not, you're dealing with a thing that you have to keep alive, a human, <laughs> totally one hundred percent dependent uh-huh. on you. And it's a, I think the pressure. And that you have to all of a sudden do teamwork in a way that you've never done before and build this thing uh, from scratch that you've never even, you you've, you kind of figured you were just done with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's daunting. 
It's a daunting task. What are some things that surprised you that you, before having a kid, would have been like, I never saw that coming? Hmm, surprised me about, yeah. Well, I mean, there's like the typical thing, which is that you think, oh, it's going to be such a pain in the ass that that will be like the way that you have to change your life will certainly be a drag to the point where you'll just think about it being a drag. But you really, even though it is a drag, like sometimes I mourn my old life. I'm like, oh, yeah, everyone after the show is going for a drink, but I'm going home. But then I actually like spending time with my child. I never, ever factored that in, Uh. ever. Like what an idiot I am. I never factored in the idea that I would like to spend time to spend the whole day like doing, trying to figure out fun things for the kid. It's obvious that you wouldn't have thought of that because it's not the relationship you had with your parents. Sure. But I think so my mom tried to do. So if it didn't seem do, like yeah. fun to them, then why would it seem like fun to you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I was just so embroiled in my own little life too. It was funny. And then, um, yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm glad I did it when I did because I, I like hanging out. I love hanging out. I like going to a bar and having a drink. I'm definitely mm-hmm. a bar fly, but it's, and it's a little, you know, sure. I like having drinks, but it's more that I just like the culture of hanging out. I just like You're hanging out. You're a hangout girl. Out. You went to Toronto to smoke pot and hang around comedians. Yes. I, right. You're the, a hanger out. The after show hang out with comedians thing. Yeah. Loved it. Right. I could do that all night long. But then I got to a point where it was just like, this gets a little tired. Mm-hmm. Like it's great in your twenties. It's fine. In your thirties. But then it was just like, people's lives were changing. My life was changing. And it wasn't as fun anymore. It just didn't have the same spark. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I do try to, rem- when I mourn my old life sometimes and go, oh, I can't hang out. I also go, yeah, but you did that. You did that like great. You're an Olympic athlete at that. <laughs> <I'm doing> that. <laughs> You're allowed to have a change. Yeah. You're allowed to have a change, you know? So yeah. So I didn't expect that I'd actually want to be with the kid. <laughs> Why did you decide? Was the kid a planned kid? Um, not really. No. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I was adamantly saying for most of my life that I definitely was not going to have children and I was mm-hmm. definitely not into it. And then I got, you know, I, you know, the, the short long story is then I turned, I, I turned 40. Uh, I actually got diagnosed with an early stage breast cancer. Thank God it was early stage, but of mm-hmm. course there's no such thing as a lucky cancer. Sure. Had to go through um, surgery and radiation, and I completely fell apart. I mean, I, I've at, never... At 40? Yeah, I've never been so... I mean, that was just such terror and torture and everything in between. I did not I did not respond to it by, like, having this survivor, you know, we're all going to get through this. I was so angry, mm-hmm. so angry and upset. Angry and, at the situation, angry I, at God, what? Yeah, I mean, God... The situation. Okay, not a not a believer. I take it then. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, I think this is something my mother said my entire life, and I have to agree with her on. She would be, uh, she would say, you know, let's say there was something on television where they were showing a whole bunch of people praying for an illness to be cured or for a tragedy mm-hmm. to. Um, get better or some sort of thing she would go yeah that's a lot that's gonna do you a lot of good keep praying someone else is gonna actually have to work on it no this is also the woman (laughs) who saw the nun in the tree (laughs) i probably shook her up a little bit yeah i think it's hard with people who went through big tragedies your religious leader hanging dead in a tree well i also gotta have an impression i'm pretty sure my father and my mother saw a lot of terrible terrible things in world war ii and i think it would be hard to convince 
people who've gone through that, that there is a benevolent God out there that is taking care of everybody. But then there are people like Ellie Wiesel, who is still a believer after what he went through, which is amazing. Yeah. My wife just read me night. She read me the book because she's like, because I never read it. And she's like, you never read this. And she picked it up and she started reading it. And I and I listened, which I love somebody reading me a yeah. story. There's nothing better than that. But it, it was, and it turned out that she read it to me the day before Holocaust Remembrance Day, but we, neither one of us were aware of it, which was kind of eerie. Yeah. Um, out of the blue to read a Holocaust book and then realize the timing. But it was, it led me to a few hours of YouTubing Ellie Wiesel, and I was like, wow, to go through all that and maintain your faith is incredible. Like I can see the up, I can see the benefit of that too. I mean, honestly, I wish I was somehow geared up that way mm-hmm. to just pray to something. I think it, it is easier uh, on your anxiety, and I think it's easier on your brain. I think it does provide you with some sort of comfort that is truly impossible to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to believe, and that is where I fall apart. That's the problem for you. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. I would love to believe. Is Ophira? I would love to believe. A Hebrew name? Yes, yeah, super Israeli. What does it mean? It, King Solomon named his first gold mine Ophir, which or Ophir, which you may know, which is the masculine version. Mm-hmm. You know, Ophir. I've heard. Yeah, so Ophira is just a feminine version. Okay, yeah. so you're named after King Solomon's gold mine. Gold mine. You said gold, right? Yep, gold. For a second, I, I, thought, right, gold. I thought I heard you say goat, but I was like, there's no such thing as a goat mine. That's, well, again, <laughs> right? it's the, uh, the knockoff Canadian. <laughs> Canadian version. But I'm, I just I just heard it wrong, but I don't think you said goat. No, mind. gold. Gold. Goat mind. Gold. Goat mind. Goat mind. Goat, goat mind. He had a goat mind. <laughs> I am a Capricorn. <laughs> that is a goat mind. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so anyways, after that life-threatening situation, I got through it. it was did you it pray in that situation? Did I pray? Yeah. No. There was no point where you're like, all right, I'm just going to try it. You know what I did? Through. I will tell you, and I still do this, because also after I finally had my kid, Lucas, it, for the first little while when you don't know what you're doing, I was just so scared. I was doing everything wrong, and you're sleep-deprived. And so I was. I had a lot of anxiety in the beginning. And so I do this thing, which is my only trick, is uh, and I usually do it when it, before I go to bed, which is when I'm starting to freak out. That's when my you know just lying still, mm-hmm. none, no um, other sensory things, and I just start freaking out. Is that I start picturing in my brain what everything would look like if it worked out, like to the most amazing possibility that I can imagine. Mm-hmm. So I just start going through every scenario in my life that I'm having anxiety and having it all work out. Wow, that's, that's pretty good. That's what I do. What's that called? Isn't that visualizing or something? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah, it's some version of that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll just go one by one all through stuff. Like, so, you know, even even just stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. I'll just be like, and then I open that drawer and that watch I lost is there. Like, I'll just go through <laughs> everything that sits in my brain and causes me anxiety and worry and distress. You know, when I lose things, I often dream I find them. And then I wake up and I'm like, damn it, I never felt oh. But it happens all the time. I used to smoke and I still have dreams about smoking. And when I'm smoking in the dream, I'm really happy about it or like slightly on edge about it. But then, ha- And then I wake up in the morning and I go, 
Oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't smoke. That's the opposite. In that case, it's a relief. Yeah, when you wake relief up. that you didn't do. They needed, <laughs> and you know, before, and so anyway, something happened to me after that whole um, dealing with cancer in my body, where I started to have dreams that I was pregnant or that I had a baby. Wow. And I would wake up, and I would be very distraught about have I missed that possibility in my life. Uh, so there was something that erupted inside of me late in the game because mm-hmm. you know this biological clock or whatever. I, I just I missed I my thirties happened. I just didn't did not happen. But all of a sudden it was happening, and I was intellectually worked up about it. Uh, but I, I still wasn't going to do anything about it. However, you know, do I know how it happened? Was I having sex with protection? No. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying there was like a grand miracle that happened, but just based on everything, I never sat down and planned it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my husband and I talked about it, but he he agreed too that, you know, he was a little wishy. He was like, you know, we can have a great life without it. And I was like, I agree. And we're not really built to do this. He was like, you know, if it happened, we were sort of like that about it. Mm-hmm. And then it happened. Wow. And then it happened. So you go through this incredible um, fe- bout of anxiety and fear with cancer yeah. and and this this whole treatment. And then you wind up okay. Wind up okay. And then I mean, things they, are they finally. Ne- they never want to give you that, but they, you know, right. they give you little year leases. Yeah. Get a little year lease. You get another extension. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so you finally get back to quote unquote normal. Sure. And then things like. Yeah. And then I decide to screw it all up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Can't rest for two seconds, yeah. can I? Yeah. What's next? What is next? I had a odd thought of it just now. You went from one lump to another. Oh, but, all, yeah. But you did. Yeah. Although I never actually had a lump, thank God. But no, okay. because it was early stage. So it was actually um, within centimeters and it's, it was, it's not, you can't detect it physically you have to you can only see it on a mammogram so you went in for the mammogram it's good they caught it then i yeah. suppose that, that's the early, very early stage I yeah think, is it I good guess. that i caught i mean now honestly there's some conflicting um approaches to how to deal with that early stage stuff you know it's their cancer is a really weird thing and the industry is a really weird thing and they're uh, most approaches right now are very aggressive and conservative mm-hmm. because who wants to watch and wait but they also they're still working on it. So I was in the part of the culture where it was just like, well, as far as we know, 40% of this kind of thing has um, has basically developed into cancer. Mm-hmm. So, But there was a chance that it wouldn't, but no one would recommend watch and wait. Right. Did you but, think you were going to die? Um, no. I never thought I was going to die. I thought I might kill myself, though, because I couldn't. I couldn't handle it. And I've already, I went through a car accident, a really bad car accident as a child. And the idea that life was just going to be one kind of horrifying, out of control um, thing after another like this just seemed to be not worth it. How old were you when you were in the car accident? Eight. And was your parents driving? It was my mother driving. It wasn't her fault. A guy sped through a red light Uh and hit us. And what happened? I, um, she broke a wrist. My brother was in the front seat. His knees went into the dash and he got a black eye. Mm-hmm. Me and my friend were in the back seat. She died. 
Your friend died. My friend died. Uh, and I had um, broken ribs and a collapsed lung and a ruptured spleen and a ruptured liver and oh my god, yeah, broken bones and stuff. So of the living people, you got it the worst. I got it the worst. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So in some way, in some weird little checks and balances, karma or whatever philosophy that I'd built in my life was that I'd, I'd done my thing. Like I was safe from other problems, disease, tragedies, or whatever mm -hmm. of because that level. Because already, I, I, yeah. How did you process losing your friend like that? You know, it's a, I didn't, I didn't know. It's a lifelong, lifelong journey, honestly. I mean, I think, I think eventually the way my family, again, here we go, World War II people, uh, or of a certain age and a certain time in the life, they are very much move, you move forward. You move forward. You don't spend too much time in the past. You move forward. That mm -hmm. is how you deal with things. You move forward. So there wasn't a lot of talk about it or processing or whatever in my in my household. I mean, ugh. so so little that even, I think when I was around thirteen or fourteen, I realized I didn't even know very many details about the car accident because no one had ever told me and I'd never asked. Mm -hmm. And I started to try to explore what the actual story was because I didn't even know what the actual story was. You know, because I was just in the hospital. Yeah. I didn't have memories from it. And so then I pieced together the story. Um, and then I also found, I found a note that Adrian is the girl's name who died in the car accident. I found a note that her father wrote to my mother wow. right after the car accident. Basically, you know, saying like how tragic it was, but that, you know, him and I had, well, anyways, it, in, in my memory was about that has it, she should not feel like she had anything to do with, you know, mm -hmm. like she shouldn't bear any of the, um, it's a nice gift that he gave her. To yeah. Do that. Yeah. Do, well, you were, you were going to say he, he and I, but I was going to ask you about, do you, are you in touch with her parents still? So her mother passed away many years ago now, the father. So I will, so I've told the story of, Part of the healing thing and processing what happened to Carson is that I told the story very early on as part of a moth show. I mm -hmm. developed a piece and and then I told the story. They asked me to perform it for their <laughs> podcast and radio show, and I agreed to it. It was actually something surprisingly hard to do mm -hmm. in hindsight, but I did it, and it actually was good in the sense that I felt like in some way I had taken control of the story, right? That's the standard thing of like... Mm -hmm. Art therapy or whatever, well, if like you were to break it down. To, cathartic. Yeah. And then when they put it on the radio show, um, they, you know, we we had we recorded a little intro. We talked about that letter, and you know, as a podcast goes, people listen to it, and they listen to it all over the place. So it kind of went around Calgary. Uh -huh. Moth is quite popular, and I guess Adrian's father listened to the podcast. And he wrote me an email. Wow. Uh, and I didn't open that email for like two weeks. I was so scared of it. I, I, I don't, I just let it sit in my inbox. I just didn't want to deal with it. Because I was like, what if I offended him? Mm -hmm. You know, how, do I have any right? Running over how to you tell told the story in your yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I have any right to this? Did I say anything weird? You know, and then I was like, and then I would kind of get in my high horse and be like, I have every right to my story. <laughs> you know? So what did he say? It was, I mean, it was totally lovely. It was uh, just that how how great it was to just hear that I was doing well 
and how long ago that was. And he, he said, he was like, I never, you know, he just said, I never blamed your mother, you know, for what happened, you know, just, he just mm-hmm. wanted to clarify that. I think, you know, that's what I remember in my brain from reading that letter, but he clarified that and it was just like, you know, these, these things happen and, you know, some sort of life goes on and, you know, here's what's happening. She has two brothers. Here's what's happening with this brother. Mm-hmm. Here's what's happening with this brother. We live here, you know, just sort of a, a bit of a roundup. Uh, That's a huge traumatic thing. <laughs> you could have, when I said, why'd you want to be a comedian? You could have started with that. <laughs> right. I love that. I came in here for a nice lighthearted talk and uh-huh. here's where we are. Yeah. But anyways. Yeah. When this happened, where, where, where were you guys going? Or coming from that day? We were coming from the Jewish Community Center, uh-huh. from swimming at the Jewish Community Center, and we were dropping her off at home. Mm-hmm. So it was a carpool situation, in other words. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, no one, how, I, you know, my mother... My mother and I don't have the kind of relationship. This is not true. I say my mother and I don't have the kind of relationship where I could ever ask her, how did you feel about this happening to you? Because I could. She's not blocked off to anything. Mm-hmm. I just, I think I, I've never wanted to. It's intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think she wants to relive any of this stuff in her own brain. Oh, my God. It must have been horrible for her. It must have been so horrible for her. I don't even know. You know, and so... And that brings me to this thing where I just keep going this in my head. And, um, you know, I tell I told that story in one of the great offshoots other than that response was a lot of people hearing it. And, you know, they a lot of people have gone through all kinds of horribly tragic stuff that they've had to live through. Mm-hmm. And they hear your story. And even if it's not exactly the same, it touches something in them or reminds them of something. And, you know, ultimately, we're all surviving and they write you a note Mm -hmm. and let you know and tell their story so i read you know um dozens upon dozens of other people's super tragic stories and i just in you know i just keep thinking um how do we do this how do we all agree to just do this every single day it is amazing Uh because it's ridiculous what we're all putting up with And that's when you decided maybe I'll kill myself. <laughs> right? I don't want to put up with this every day uh-huh. again. So you're telling me more bad shits on the horizon, like high potential. Does what? having a kid give you a new vigor for life? New vigor for life? I mean, yeah, there there is some, um, there is definitely, you know, I have thought many times, I'm like, you know, time to start stretching. <laughs> whatever because i don't want to be like all you know i'm Uh i'm older i want to be like limber for this kid in the future uh but there is there is definitely a thing i mean part of me feels guilty i'm like what world have i brought this poor child into especially Mm -hmm. in our current you know global warming uh, and political climate Mm -hmm. Uh, many different climates colliding that are all pretty negative i'd say it's the same world it always was yeah i think people are very bent out of shape but i've always seen it as equally good and grim yeah you know yeah i mean you know uh, my my mother didn't want to have kids and she she didn't know at the time when she had her first two sons that we were she was going to be in a place of peace now mm-hmm. now she's just like oh we, you know we're living in the best times of all times there's no bombs falling on us right basically yeah 
Um, so, but I, I do have that same like cliche thing where I'm like, I want to make sure this kid has the best life. And it's like a whole bunch of it's on me. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to make sure he's got a great life. I'm going to make yeah. sure he always feels taken care of. I'm going to make sure that, you know, everything that, that could influence his happiness that I can provide, I'm going to provide. Your kid comes from a long chain of people that reluctantly had kids. <laughs> It's exactly that kid. I got to say, and I don't know anything about having a child, but he is a giggly kid. Uh-huh. And I mean, he's, he's also opinionated and he's like now a little toddler and throws tantrum stuff, but he's a giggly kid and you just feel so lucky. You have this little being that wakes up and just looks at you and starts laughing. Uh-huh. You're just like, that's the greatest <laughs> thing. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what it's like to have shit happen. It's awesome. <laughs> And you you do that gives you a little vigor in life because it lightens you up a little bit to see what it is like to have no awareness of any of this external stuff or internal anxiety that you know it's just yeah. Did you have feelings of why did I live and why did my friend die? Totally, absolutely, yeah. And on a positive side of it, I constructed a story where I had to make some sort of mark on the world to justify my existence existence uh-huh cool well i like the mark you've been making <laughs> that's nice thanks <laughs> um do you want to uh, get into this philosopher now sure who yeah who is this alex facella who's a new yorker you should uh, meet up with him for coffee sure. sometime he's a comic in new york and he i know him a philosophy major good for you alex and he sends me a philosopher for each guest so he sent me martin boober for you boober which is a name I've heard, but I don't know off the top of my head why or how. Maybe this. I mean, it sounds like a nickname for a guy at a frat house. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly what it says. Hey, Boba! Come on, bring the keg in. Everybody's waiting, Boba. Martin Boober was born February eighth, eighteen seventy eight, and he lived till June thirteenth, nineteen sixty five. Okay. Wow, that's cool. He was a guy that. Uh, was from the 1800s and lived into the 1960s. That's an interesting uh, block of time to go through. He was an Austrian-born Israeli-Jewish philosopher. He was best known for his philosophy of dialogue, a form of existentialism centered on the distinction between the I-thou relationship and the I-it relationship. He was born in Vienna. Buber came from a family of observant Jews, but broke the Jewish custom to pursue secular studies and philosophy. In 1923, Buber wrote his famous essay on existence. We were just talking about existence. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we always? (laughs) Ich und du. Later translated into English as I and thou. He was really into I and thou. (laughs) It and du. Ich und du. Ich und du. Do you speak any Dutch? Uh, I can say like three phrases, but uh, supposedly my accent's fantastic. What are the phrases? I can say, da, who got it to mean? That's pretty good. I don't know what it means, but it sounded very Dutch. It just means, hi, how are you? Yeah, I liked it. I thought, you know, (laughs) brought me right back to the Den Hagen. Um, (laughs) And in 1925, he began translating the Hebrew Bible into the German language. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature 10 times. And Nobel Peace Prize seven times. Wow, they really liked him, those noble people. They're super noble. Um, Martin, the Hebrew name Mordechai, 
Uber was born in Vienna to an Orthodox family. This just, I guess, expounds on what I just read. Because his parents divorced when he was three years old, he was educated and raised by his grandfather in Lvov, where he learned Talmud, literature, and Hasidism, uh, whose rabbis and leaders became exposed to his grandfather, Solomon Buber, was a renowned scholar of Midrash and rabbinic literature. All right, so it just goes on like that. All right. So that's a that's a little background. And what Alex says you have in common is because Ophira has a book about sleeping her way to monogamy. Yeah. He picked a philosopher of relationships. Oh. I guess I and thou are relationships. Oh, right. I thought I the connection was the Israeli thing, but I guess he never... No, he went he, deeper. Yeah. <laughs> went deeper. It's okay. A, it's a double connection. Right. So it's like the uh, the person you are as I and the person you are as thou. Is that mm-hmm. the difference? The, pers- the different... Uh, I don't know who the person you are whose di- thou would mean. I guess we'll read on. There are two ways of addressing someone. I, it, and I, thou. I, it, is when you address someone as lesser than you. Mm. You use, you already know what that means, because I don't. Someone lesser than you? You address someone as lesser than you. Sure. What does that mean? I like if I, you're condescending. Like, so you <laughs> should, so should say condescending. You use what you know about the person. It says you use what you know about the person to manipulate them. If a mechanic says this costs 500 you would say mechanics usually charge 200 to lower the price. Most of these interactions are harmless and perfectly normal, but are based in ego nonetheless. Mm-hmm. I-thou interactions address someone as your equal, here and now with no desire involved. Um, quote, I love you is a selfless act of love, not a power move. I-thou is the only state where we can truly learn, grow, and be creative because ego is out of the way. We can never grow without other people because we must have a thou to truly become I. Mm. What'd wow. Th- what'd you take away from that? Well, you know, interesting. I like that idea that the only way you can grow is when your ego is out of the question, even though compared to ev- basically every last self-help book out there, I believe would contradict that. So the idea that is being put forth to all of us on how to succeed in life by popular American culture Mm -hmm. is to focus not on equality, is to focus on how we are so much better. It is all Mm. all this focus on how we are better, we are better, we are better. Self-care, this whole thing right now about self-care, I find one of the worst things of all time. Why? Is th- because it is more of looking at yourself. More of looking at yourself. When times are tough, you should do self-care. Like, look at, take care of yourself. No, take care of, look out. Look out of yourself. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that take is, care of other people. Take care of other people. And get in doing out so, of it. you take care of yourself. Yeah, get out of it. But that is just not, I mean, there's a little bit of chatter right now about community, which I guess, in a sense, community is supposed to, uh, be about equality, equality in the community altogether. Mm-hmm. So that's positive. What's this chatter? I never hear chatter. You're you're tuned into chatter. I'm not chatter. Well, I just mean that you know, in terms of how everyone is dealing with whatever their fears and anxieties right now are in the pl- in my little enclave of New York, mm-hmm. of dealing with you know feeling that their rights are being stripped away or that their rights aren't being represented, uh, fear of war, fear of uh, you know, science versus policy, all these things that people are very worked up about right now, feeling not peaceful, mm-hmm. feeling in a state of not peacefulness. So they talk about, you know, you got to build your community 
um, find your community, build your community, strengthen your ties with your community, and then mm-hmm. fight with your community. Sure. Bond together, stronger together. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think of that? That's true. I, I feel like one of the, <laughs> and you do feel this super, um, very pronounced when you have a child, is that there is, you have to find, you have to create a community because we don't have communities. And it's so hard to raise a kid basically mm-hmm. alone. I imagine that up until you had a kid, you were, or at least you saw yourself as a lone wolf. Lone wolf. And you know what? Kind of happily a lone wolf. As a stand-up, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, I just don't work well with other people. <laughs> like I'm just yeah. better on my own. You have a very competent aura about you. <laughs> but you do. You do. I've, I've, that, that's something when I try to pull back in my head who you were. That came to mind, oh, she's very competent, she's very, you know, and even if you're falling apart inside, that's not what you're projecting. Sure. I got you it know? all together. Yeah. I got it all together. I imagine together. we're all falling apart inside on some level, but... Yeah, uh, sure. But but some of us can't even hide it on the outside. It's true. But you're it's very true. good at... Um, Thank you. Giving, Hiding. <laughs> you project this confidence, which is like, yeah. you, you, you seem like you don't need anybody, you God know? Goddamn smoke and mirrors. Right. Um, even though, yeah, I think I define myself through other people always. I fight that. I fight that Going to all that. What the is time. That? Defining yourself through other people. So I used mm-hmm. to define myself, like I, I didn't really have a, part of the reason why I liked having so many relationships is because I didn't know who I was or what I liked at all. I didn't really understand it. Or wasn't clear about it. And so I would learn about myself by dating people. I would see myself and by reflected by how they how I perceived they saw me. You're like that character that Julia Roberts once portrayed in a movie. I don't remember what the movie was. Runaway Bride. Wow. Did you ever see that movie? No. Because I always that, that movie, I always thought it was an odd movie, but now I but I guess it's true. She she dated all these different people and whatever they did. She did. Yeah. Because she didn't know who she was. Didn't and then, know who I was. And then, like, there's a scene, dramatic scene at the end of the movie. And this is all coming back to me now. That she didn't, uh, she's like, I don't even know what kind of eggs I like. <laughs> Poached. I don't remember. That's the clear answer to oh, any egg question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was. I don't remember. But but so that was you. And also, you know, I I only liked people who liked me. Mm-hmm. Right, the idea of me being the first person to like someone—that was just no. If someone liked me, then I liked them. Mm-hmm. It was so easy. So I, you know, everything was about um, gaining someone's like, or or um, always being very concerned about how I came across to them, like needing their feedback and admiration, mm-hmm. whatever, uh, and a- approval. Yeah. Approval, yeah, right, and I think that's also built into the youngest of six thing, right? I didn't know who I was and what cult, what like, what music did I listen to? I listened to what my older brothers listened to. Mm-hmm. Like, you listened to their comedy records. I listened to their comedy re- records. I listened to their music. I, I never. You think I had the control on the over the television? Mm-hmm. I mean, now it would be so different because we'd all have our own device that we'd all feel like individuals. But back then it was much more of a collective just based on the way that technology was built. And sure. so you, you as the youngest, you were, you had no control. Do you know who you are now? Well, I feel like actually the create the creative process, but the, because I do autobiographical comedy and writing, 
you know, you have, it's constant reflection on who you are. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned who I am and explored who I am. Despite yourself. Despite myself. Damn it, I mean, you're by gonna, thinking you're about it, it yeah. and like going out and like having to go, well, what is my opinion on that? Uh-huh. Like, so, you know, and comedy is all about, you know, perspective, strong point of view. Mm-hmm. And we don't, when you don't know what your point of view is, I mean, and I felt like I spent 10 years on stage experimenting with point of views. It's a scary place to be. I remember being there at one point uh, with regards to religion in my 20s and I grew up uh, in an Orthodox family and, I realized, wait a minute, I never decided to be Orthodox. I was, I, who am I? What did I decide? And then ultimately I left it for a long time and through an odd thing of circumstances wound up coming back to some degree. Hmm. But, but um, it's, uh, it, it, it's an interesting struggle to find yourself at a certain point because you, you're like, oh, wait a minute, who am I? Who, who? What are my opinions? What do I think? Uh, and if it seems like it's all been handed over to you, that's a scary thing to be like, wait a minute, I never got to be a... And when did this start? You right, know? and wh- and when was I supposed to know it? Like, I also yeah. thought I, I... You know, we're just talking about... I'm joking about me hiding. But I feel like I also hit it because I felt like I came to it so late. Mm-hmm. Like, I came to it so late, even having any idea who I was as an individual and not just sort of glomming on to whatever the people who liked me were into truly better late than never because i think a lot of people go through their whole life and at a certain point I, it must hit them at a certain point now i've gone too much the other way though i got to come back now i'm like no i hate that no that's stupid <laughs> everything mainstream is dumb <laughs> but, but i i remember listening to top 40 music you know on the radio or whatever uh and i think it was some preteen thing and just having what i thought was a very deep thought of well, how would I even know what my favorite song is if these are the only songs I know? <laughs> like, who's saying these are top 40 hits? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're just feeding it to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I need to go to a record store. Yeah. See what's out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's such a funny moment that where you felt that was very profound. I thought that was so deep. An epiphany. <laughs> but I think everybody's gotten to that point. Well, I'm not going to eat what they're feeding me. <laughs> but I do think a lot of people get to a point where they never really explored who they are. They just are a, a victim of, they're just a victim of circumstance. Circumstances. They're a victim of circumstance. And they're a victim of their upbringing or a product of their upbringing. Right. And, and I guess it just it varies on how, how what degree are they comfortable with that? Well, they wind up going through the motions of life almost, you know, get a degree, get married, have kids, and they're too busy just doing the things they have to do to actually have the time to get introspective and look at who they are. And I imagine it must hit them at some point when the kids move out. They're like, oh boy. Sure, right. I mean, I'm and now not it's sure back I ever to me. got to know who I am. And yeah. I went through this whole thing. And those kids now were raised by people who didn't know who they were. Yeah, you know, it's. It I often on. think too for my son to talk about like this whole new vigor of life. You know, I, I feel like I, I was just like, oh God, I still have like profound loneliness things that I really should uh, work on. Or sometimes I, I, I question myself: Is it better to treat your fellow person with like just always generosity, always generosity, and not be worried about what you get back mm-hmm. because it's better than being guarded and paranoid that you're not going to get something back that it will not be equal. Mm-hmm. You know, because I feel like that's the world I live in too. Is just yeah. sort of like, yeah, but if I'm treating you with equality, there's you, there's no way that you are going to agree yeah. to the same 
thing. So then I'm going to be losing all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I always think I'm going to figure this stuff out because I want to be able to tell him how to do it. I think you're never losing if you're doing that. The other person's losing because they're emotionally underdeveloped. To the you're 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 like running next to somebody who can't run, <laughs> and you're like, why can't they keep up? Right. But you're not losing because they can't keep up with you. You're still getting healthy in the process. Okay, so I always ask the guests to read a paragraph. Would you uh, do us the honors? Here? I would love to. There are three principles in man's being, and by that I mean every person's being. Thought, speech, and action. The origin of conflict between me and my fellow men is that I don't say what I mean and I don't do what I say. A person mm. cannot approach the divine by reaching beyond the human. To become human is what this individual person has been created for. Okay, I got to unpack that, man. It's always that way. Okay, the origin of the conflict between me and my fellow men is that I don't say what I mean and I don't do what I say. Okay, that's the conflict. Don't, That's the conflict. Don't say what you mean. That was that was you for a while because you didn't even know what you meant. And don't do what I say. And you don't do what you say. That's when I say you should be keep running, and in the meantime, I start walking slower. Right. You know, because I, think, I, I think, get discouraged. I think everyone's had a, a resolution somewhere in their brain where they're like, "This year, I'm only gonna I'm gonna do exactly what I promised to do. Every uh-huh. time I say I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. You know what? That's hard. It is. Basically, you have to just stop saying you're going to do things. But I feel like at least you should say it, because if you're not saying it anymore, that ambitious part of you is dying. And then at least at least if you're saying, I'm going to do 10 things, and you only do one of them, you're still doing one of them. Sure. You know? Right. That's the old uh, lie, in, lie in the gutter but stare at the stars. I never heard that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think who said that. That is Oscar Wilde, maybe, I oh, think. Okay. Yeah. I thought be- it was a Canadian street saying. <laughs> it was Oscar Wilde, the Canadian <laughs> offshoot. Uh, a, pers- a person cannot approach the divine by reaching beyond the human. So that's it. We just have to be human. Mm-hmm. Stop. Stop trying not to be human. Yeah. I'm very, though, connected to, like, the earth and human and not being too... I'm, I've never been someone that lives in the airy airiness. I think it would be nice. You know, those people who just kind of float around mm-hmm. and they say all these things like, I don't know, it just, things will get taken care of. And you're like, how? How are they going <laughs> to- You don't have any yoga do pants? You a, do you have a, <laughs> a three-step plan that was being taken care of? Um, would you like a quote? Uh, so that's the end of the paragraph? Though? Well, to become human, sorry, to become human is what this individual person has been created for. That's it. You know, I like this concept of, your goal is just to become human. Like that's hard enough. Yeah. Like, cause basically, right. There's more to being human than where you are right now. You're in some like beginner human phase, but you mm-hmm. could go to advanced human stage. I feel like you took a huge step in having a kid. Like you're probably learning a whole new level of human. It is. It is. I mean, I was just talking about this with my friend too, is that, you know, the difference between what is being taught. So you see right now what it is like for a kid that has nothing, no bad behaviors have been taught to him. What's that like? Yeah. Right? Like, we're just going to screw him up going forward. Just try to do the best you can, right? It's going to be fine. I think you'll do a good job. Jesus. But it's interesting because it's challenging your whole life. It shook up your relationship. You're going you're gonna to have to learn how to love in a deeper way or something. Yeah, you know? all of a sudden I'm thinking about like a five-year plan. Okay. 
The world is not comprehensible, but it is embraceable through the embracing of one of its beings. This is quote number one, by the way. Okay, so that's like yeah. about love, right? That's about, I, I'm just taking a very literal level. It seems like it. You embrace a person, you, you, you embrace the world. You embrace the world, and you embrace, right, the world of humanity. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that one. Yeah. I mean, it's a little too long for a t-shirt. <laughs> But I, I could, or a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> a little long for a tattoo. Yeah, a little That's long. like two forearms. <laughs> um, but I like that. Embraceable. That's not a word I use very often. Embrace. I don't use embrace, I think, hardly at all. Hmm. But it's a good word. Yeah, it's nice. What do you like about it? Uh, I think, well, hug is just so, um, you know, basic. There's something about embrace that feels like... Um, Warmer, uh, warmer, yeah. That's yeah. what I was gonna say. There's something about it, a little, little. There's like, like a like a, a protective blanket, a protective would be an blanket, yeah. yeah, like a uh, a golden lasso, <laughs> <laughs> little Wonder Woman. Uh huh. Greatness by nature includes power, but not a will to power. Well, <sighs> yeah, yeah. You guys, you gotta have power. You have to be powerful to be great. But you don't have your your <laughs> really? intention shouldn't be. I I would think so because if if somebody's great and they're not powerful, how are they great? A great song is powerful in some way. I feel right? like there's a lot of great people right now that don't have any power. I don't know if it means literal power, like okay. you have to be like running the country or something. I think you you could have power over your own life. You could have influence. You can have okay. Yeah, you, you can have power over uh, your listeners and your yes. show. Sure, you know. Uh, you do the show on NPR. You, I, I was driving uh, along and listening to it, and uh, it was making me laugh and oh, smile. Oh, that's and, nice. And uh, so you have that power. You have the power to change the mood of a driver in a car. But will to power. No so power. the will to power, it's saying don't have. Yes. So that would probably that's... be the people who run stuff have the will to power, I would think, because they're like their intention is to get power. Right. But if you obtain power through, through pure great, intention. No, that's the only way it should happen. Yeah. It's basically power should be organic. Yeah. All the people with just a will to power are not great. One who truly meets the world goes out also to God. Wow. Now that's we'd throw God into this whole thing at the end. <laughs> what is what do you think he means by that? One who truly meets the world goes out also to God. So I guess, you know, this is my stupid interpretation. That if you fulfill, basically, the... if I, I'm sure these quotes work together, right? They're part of the whole, the same same thought. They're, they're all the same guy. Right, so his, his entire um, philosophy thesis. So basically, um, one who truly meets the world, so I think that's part of, like, one who truly reaches their potential... Uh, at being, you know, this human who mm-hmm. truly tries to become human, if making that like a very high honor to finally realize the potential of your true humanity, that is the closest to divinity, divinity and God. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. and and sort of that God lives in a human realm, right? Mm-hmm. That it's not just like another whole world of you know, angels and spirits and whatever, that God is, God is actually potentially the potential of humanity. Right. I can, I'll get behind that. Okay. 
Cool. <laughs> so what, what I do you like th- that. What do you think of Boober in general? I think Boober is going to graduate <laughs> with a lot of... He's going to leave that fig, Phi Sigma Kappa. He's going to leave school. <laughs> he's going to leave school. And then he's going to come back the next day and it'll be bombed and everyone will be dead in a tree. <laughs> Closer to God. Dead nun in a tree while tragic is a very funny image in my head. I'm sure not when your mom saw it, but well, she just laughed. Dead nun in a tree because she's like hanging there like an ornament. Yep. I imagine her not looking dead or anything, just just being. I don't know why. I just imagine a nun in a tree. I I do too, and I've always made it quite comical and animated in my own brain. Uh You know, and not there's like no blood or hurt or whatever. It's just a tree with a nun hanging in it. Right. For some reason, she's all in nun garb. In her nun garb. (laughs) (laughs) She's almost waving. (laughs) Yeah. Right. She's got a smile on her face. Wow, what a crazy, crazy life your mom has had. And, you know, going through that and then your friend dying in the car. And, well, that's pretty traumatic. <laughs> it's a long, short life. Yeah. So far. And and you too. I mean, uh, it's been, it seems like an interesting journey. You come from older parents and now you are an older parent. I know. How, I re- I'm repeating a mistake. Yeah. Was it a mistake? It's, it's it's seem, it seems like it wasn't. No. I mean, you seem happy about it. Yeah, I'm totally. I know. I I made that choice, and I I stand behind it. <laughs> I stand behind my decision. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's great catching up with oh, you and Danny's seeing so you here. Oh, Danny, so great. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks for doing the show. <laughs> Bye. All right, everybody. That's our show. Thanks again for tuning in. Thank you to Ophira Eisenberg. Thank you to our sponsors, Renovatio Enterprises, Stand Up Records, and BB's Bakery and Cafe. Thank you guys for going on this emotional journey with me this week. I thank you for the support. I'm assuming I have your support. And again, if you can, please try to pre-order my new album, Some Kind of Comedian, available August 4th on Stand Up Records. You can go to moderndayphilosophers.net where you can click a link to pre-order the album. You could also click a link to my GoFundMe for Edinburgh. I'll be at the Edinburgh Festival in August. I'm trying to raise some funds for that. It's going to be fun if you're in the UK or anywhere near the UK or here and you want to come to the UK, come and see me in the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland this year. And as always, you can make a donation on the website if you want to give back something to the show. There's general donation area. You can write me at thecomical at yahoo.com. I love, love hearing from you and I appreciate hearing from you. Please write me. The comical at yahoo.com. And that's about it. I'm on Twitter at Danny Lobel. I'm about to have lunch. I'm going to go on a walk, probably with my dog. And then at night, I plan to go to sleep. That's about it for me. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time with another exciting and jam packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Goodbye, everybody. So long. Take care of yourselves. Be kind to each other. Bye bye.